Oh, hi, it's your friend Ellie, and you're listening to Butt Out Baby, a scene-by-scene recap and analysis of the 1987 masterpiece Dirty Dancing, said unironically. A film that gets a lot of love, but not enough respect. This is scene three, Dancing in the Gazebo, or Gazebo, if you're Max Kellerman. Here is your bird's eye view. The Hausmans attend an informal merengue dance class in the gazebo. A wide range of Kellerman's guests are led through some beginner steps by the vibrant and confident dance instructor, Penny. Baby is visibly awkward throughout, and her discomfort culminates when missing out on a partner dance with her father, she's paired with a little old lady. I have a special guest for this episode, my friend Maria, who's a dancer and dance instructor. We met in Athens in 2019, just a few days before I hit my head. I was solo traveling around and doing, you know, your standard Tinder adventures. And then this person popped up who was like, I don't know, I'm like kind of in Greece to go skateboarding. And I thought, that is the weirdest thing ever. I'm going to find out about that. And so we met up and it was not a lie. You were there teaching skateboarding. When I asked you if you're a good skateboarder, you said, no, I've just learned. Yes, I was in Greece teaching skateboarding, even though I barely knew how to do it myself. And no, somehow that's not how I hit my head. I was just sitting on a beach and stood up under an overhanging rock. Anyway, Maria is a delight, and we stayed in touch. Here she is answering my question about her dancing background. Probably started going to dance classes at three, and they were all tap dancing classes. And I sucked. Not like a little bit sucked, like I really sucked. I sucked because I didn't want to ever do what I was told. I didn't really understand timing of music. And then I would just leave the stage when I was done. So the first time I started even doing well, I came off the stage, I was probably about five, and I said, I'm really puffed, I must have done all my steps. So like, that's the level of like commitment to dance. I was like, I don't know, I kind of like music, let it go. Um, But then I started kind of doing everything. So I did some competitive aerobics, I did hip hop and jazz, and I taught a bunch of those things. I went to university and danced on a dance team. I was a cheerleader for like our local rugby team, which was absurd. And then have done like a lot of choreography things as well. And now I only do salsa. This is so dumb, but I didn't know that there were cheerleaders in New Zealand. Yeah, we weren't ever called cheerleaders. We were always called like the Highlanders dancers. And we would not really ever cheer. Like we'd never be like, go team. But we would come on at halftime. And I once did a dance to Eminem Lose Yourself in front of like a stadium of rugby fans. Uh, Yeah, that's an odd choice. So does that mean like most of your dance though was like very performance based like up until recently or? Yeah, yeah, totally. It it truly was up until salsa. Dance is like such a strange thing because white Western cultures have done such a good job of being like that only happens in the depths of the night or in a class that you're paying for. Um, and dance is like not brought into just common existence 
So really the only opportunities to like learn a dance and get better at something and have a lot of reason to get better at something for me at least came from saying, oh, there's going to be a competition. And then when salsa came around, it was like, oh, you can actually dance and just go to a club, like a salsa club and dance salsa. So you can get better because it will help you connect with people and help you move better on a social floor where no one's watching, like you're just dancing with a partner. Yeah, that is a really good point you made about Western culture. But like, you know what I'm like a little bit heartened by is TikTok. I keep seeing all these videos of 12-year-old boys doing the the new Adams Family dance. A very silly, campy, kind of effeminate dance. It's like really normal and cool for like 12-year-old boys just doing that while they're hanging around. Um, that's so different than when I was that age. For those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, there is this fun, weird dance done by actor Jenna Ortega, who plays Wednesday Adams in the Netflix show Wednesday. And it went viral on TikTok. And when that happens, it usually means like a zillion people will post versions of themselves doing the dance, including lots of kids. And I called the dance effeminate because there's a lot of swaying and fine dexterity, wrist and finger action. In other words, it's not a butch dance. And so it was really fun to see boys dancing to it because it was cool. I think what's interesting though about TikTok is, and this is so just the echo chambers that my TikTok gives me, is that you have like professional dancers now fighting back against TikTok dancers, being like, because the thing about TikTok dan dancers like I've tried to do some of them because I work with students and there is like this um, kind of demure groove that they have. Nobody who's ever been a professional dancer has ever been told like, could you just do less? You know, it's always like extend more, like present more. What else can you give us? How much sharper can that be? And so much of TikTok is like, these kids are like so cool doing nothing. Well, this is a really good point about, yeah, like like learning the language of like different like types of dances. So I good grief. This was too much of a pain to edit. I said like about a thousand times and I was talking really fast. So I'm just going to tell you what I said to Maria. I do love dancing, but I've only been to dance classes a couple times because mostly I find them uncomfortable because dance steps don't come easily to me. And I was telling Maria about going to a hip hop dance class in the summer. And I brought along a new friend who had also never been to this class before. So I thought I would have a buddy who was also a newbie. But while I was struggling the whole way through, I would look over at her and she was always getting the steps so quickly. And after she told me, oh, well, I've been going to dance classes my whole life. So I kind of know the language. And I told Maria that my only experience with this kind of thing is team sports. I could try out a sport completely new to me, but by the end of an hour, I would have a decent hang of it because it feels related to knowledge I already have. This maybe is too much of a digression. You can pull me back. But like whenever we have any learning models, like even infants when they learn, there's some people that believe language is like a, um, it's kind of statistical learning. Like we start to learn that certain diphthongs can precede or succeed other diphthongs. So when you see ones that you know are non-existent in your language, even if you don't know every word in English, you can go, that's not a word. Or um, 
I call it like my sister's scrabble technique where she's like, that has to be a word. Like, and that's a feeling we have because like certain diphthongs and certain organizations of words statistically or letters statistically are more likely to show up together. And I think we under or don't talk enough about how that's true for any physical thing we're trying to learn as well. You know, with dance, but especially salsa, that's quite repetitive um, and has like quite bound rules about when things can happen on what counts. You know that you will never step on this foot on this count. So even if we're paused or there's a hold or something, I don't have to think that hard about it because I know I have to step if I'm dancing on one, like my right foot on the one. So you just start to develop these like rule-based kind of muscle memories. Yeah, that reminds me of like some of the like neurology books I listened to uh, during my recovery where they're talking about how much they realize like how predictive the brain is. Apparently like Serena Williams or any like top level tennis player quickly serves are done. Our brains literally cannot act fast enough to like take in the serve, think about returning it. It's an instinctual thing at that that point. Um, wow, well this uh, got real in depth quickly. My next question was just going to be, what is your relationship to the film Dirty Dancing? Yeah, I feel like Dirty Dancing is one of those films that growing up is like a millennial dancer. It was just like, at least for me, it was just old enough that you were kind of cool if you'd seen it, but also like a complete loser if you hadn't. Like it, it hit this weird thing. So I definitely, I'd grown up watching it alongside things like Flashdance and all these all these movies that had this dance component in it. But actually I rewatched it. There's a lot of it that feels like it, I know instinctually, but I couldn't remember so much of what happened in that movie. Mm-hmm. In terms of like being a dancer when you were younger and like the dance space of the kind of trifecta of 80s dance movies, was there a hierarchy between Flashdance, Footloose, Dirty Dancing? I mean, I feel like they're all pretty high up there. I feel like Footloose came down. Like not a lot of people watch Footloose until that new version came out, which sucked. No offense if you were in that and you're listening to this podcast. Um, I'm sure they are. They really, yeah. Way to alienate one of my 12 listeners. (laughs) Yeah, just bring it down to an even 10. I know there's more than 12 of you and I appreciate you all. Okay, let's get into the scene. The first shot we're treated to is a close-up of feet. There looks to be about four rows of feet facing the camera on the wooden floor of the gazebo. And there's a real diverse array of shoes here. Flip-flops, chucks, heels, men's dress shoes. We hear the beginning of the music and Penny shouting out steps. The song is called Merengue by Le Disc and Michael Lloyd. Michael Lloyd was the music supervisor for the Dirty Dancing soundtrack. Looks like he also composed and produced most of the instrumentals in the movie. I'm not sure if Le Disc is a person, place, or thing, just kidding, or if it's like Michael Lloyd's band or something. So the camera is panning across the feet until we see a pair of men's black casual shoes with black socks pulled up. Beside him, we see the right foot of a white, dirty sneaker raise up to sidestep, but miscalculates and the foot stomps down on the black shoe. Now the camera moves up and of course this clumsy move was Baby, 
who quickly apologizes to the man beside her. He looks unimpressed, and Baby goes back to staring at her feet, trying to concentrate. Jake and Marge are in the line behind her, and Lisa is beside Baby, and everyone is looking real loose and having fun, while Baby looks like a toddler who doesn't know where she's supposed to line up. How did all these people end up in this gazebo? I was like, what's their marketing? And even now, like, being in the arts, I'm like, how did you get this, like, cross-section of, of ages and, like, dance ability? Nobody's able to market anything that effectively. <laughs> now, I don't know if you know, like, are, are you, how familiar are you with merengue? I mean, a bit. Like, I dance merengue. It's part of, like, the salsa repertoire. Like, it was that merengue even? To some degree, yeah. So merengue is, like, characterized by, like, pretty syncopated, like, one, two, three, four steps back and forth. It is typically done as a partner dance. So you are dancing merengue with somebody else. I mean, it can get very advanced, but it's a very fun dance to start with if you haven't done any partner dancing because there's no, like, cheeky timing elements in it. You're truly getting to kind of, like, march along with somebody they were not really dancing merengue well, but that's okay. They're having a good yeah. time. The next shot, the camera is pulled back so we can see the whole dance class facing us. I counted about 27 people. The dance instructor, Penny, confidently demonstrates the steps while waving her dress back and forth. Then we're back with Baby being awkward and she faces Lisa for a moment. And I have to say, Lisa looked like she was subtly enjoying Baby's discomfort. I just had that overwhelming secondhand embarrassment, which sounds weird to say if you are a dancer, but when you watch people who are so uncomfortable moving, I, yeah, I always have that feeling of like, it's so, it's a little bit sad that we have restricted people so much in movement that they could be actually uncomfortable moving. We hear Penny say... Okay, when I looked around online for a description of what a round robin was in a dance context, basically nothing I found described what's going on here. What it looks like to me is Penny leading a conga line of men in a circle around a conga line of women in an inner circle. As someone who has incredibly short legs and short arms, I think maybe this is what makes me the most uncomfortable about a scene is like touching a stranger having to kind of run okay and also it's supposed to be i actually kind of love this so it's, she's like men in the outer circle and ladies in the middle mrs schumacher here inserted herself in you know in the men's circle like see it's like this is the beginning of we know we should have known she was like a devious soul and also this man here why is he touching her armpits why is jake touching her armpits and then There'll be some, a man, look at this, look at that guy. So intimate. That man is wearing like the sock length between him and the man next to him. Like this group is, is unhinged. I'm on, like, I can't. Okay, I obviously failed miserably to explain the scene live in real time. So here's what the round robin looks like, or at least the men's outer circle. First is Penny, then a short older man behind her. We'll learn his name later as Mr. Schumacher. He has his hands on Penny's waist, and it looks like Penny is holding them in place. Behind him is Mrs. Schumacher, who somehow ended up in the men's circle, which 
I was freaking out about, and I called her a devious soul because she'll take part in a crime later. Behind her is Jake, who has his hands in an awkward position. Why is he touching her armpits? The guy behind him has his hands on Jake's shoulders, and this guy is really into it, swaying his hips back and forth, which is fun because the man behind hips guy actually has his hands on said swaying hips. So intimate. So intimate. And then the guys behind all of them are just not touching each other at all. Like, this group is unhinged. Now we get a closer look at Baby in her conga line circle. She still looks uncomfortable and only smiles when her dad passes her. Now the woman behind Baby is having a ball. Lisa and her mom give each other a big smile. It's very cute. Penny has somehow found her way into the middle of both circles now and is hopping around and shouts, Come on, ladies. God didn't give you maracas if he didn't want you to shake them. She says this as she's shimmying her breasts back and forth. I don't know if that's the correct verb. Somehow this moment of like Penny drawing attention to her breasts and calling them maracas, I always found to be surprisingly sexual to be said this explicitly. And so I like ran it by my mom and her good friend who are, you know, roughly baby's age. And I was like, wouldn't this have been vulgar for the era? Or do you feel like because it's a dance class, not so much? My mom was like, I don't think so in that context. However, if someone said it at a family gathering, my mother would have been appalled. And then her friend Lynn, who's from Idaho, my mom's from Iowa, as listeners maybe remember. She was like, it's a different kind of humor from Iowa and Idaho. My mother would have totally ignored it as if she didn't hear it. Well, speaking of Penny, let's talk about her a little bit more. Here's Christy on her outfit. Penny is wearing a red dress. It's about knee length and it's bright red, like super intense red. There's like a crinoline type thing underneath. I'm not sure if there's like a a more official word for this based on her being a dance teacher, but basically there's like a white crinoline under the skirt of her dress to kind of give it volume. So it flounces around as she's moving. The dress is tight fitting at the top around her bust and her waist and has very, very thin, tiny spaghetti straps that are also red. And then the top of the dress has a white floral applique type treatment where it looks as though there's a bunch of white flowers that have been scattered around. And these are all, they look to be made out of embroidery. Penny is also wearing her hair in a style that as a kid, I called this style waterfall. Um, (laughs) Basically, it's when the front half of your hair is tied up and the back is left loose. And she also has her hair tied with like a thin red ribbon. She's also wearing very delicate gold jewelry, like a tiny gold chain, it looks like, and little gold earrings. And she's wearing black high heels, open toe. They kind of look like they're specific to dance, but I don't know for sure. Um, And then the other thing I would say about Penny, especially because I feel like in the scene, in my mind, she's being contrasted with Baby, who's also wearing red and white, but her colors are reversed, where she's mostly in white with just touches of red, and Penny is all in red with touches of white. There's like a real contrast between dressing oneself or being styled to attract a certain types of desire. Like I would say that Penny is dressed to attract the male gaze and Baby is not. That's not a priority. Maybe in Penny's outfit, it's more of a priority to be attractive than it is in Baby's outfit. Now the camera is pulled out so we can see the whole dance class. 
Everyone is still dancing in two circles, but now no one is touching each other. There's a character in this moment who has always stood out to me, which is a man in knee-high sky blue socks just given her. He's like doing a version of a soccer warm-up I used to do that we called karaoke or grapevine, where you cross your foot in front and behind your other foot as you move across the field sideways in a straight line. And this guy is doing that except not in a straight line, like zigzagging and bopping his shoulders up and down. And it looks silly, but I tried to mimic him in my living room. And it was like the same level of difficulty as rubbing your belly and patting your head. So kudos to him. Now, Penny, still in the middle of the circles, raises her finger in the air and says... Just as she announces that baby crosses paths with Jake and her face lights up as it appears to be perfect timing so she'll get to dance with her dad. But suddenly Penny juts her arm out in front of baby and takes Jake's hand to claim him as her partner. Baby turns away in disappointment to the only person left in front of her who for this second just looks like a short person with a big straw hat. We follow Penny and Jake Jake is clearly charmed by Penny, as we all are, and she shouts, Remember, he's the boss on the dance floor, if nowhere else. And then we cut back to Baby, who we see, of course, is stuck dancing with Mrs. Schumacher and looking real uncomfortable, but trying to pretend otherwise. When your baby leaves you all alone and nobody calls you on the phone, don't you feel like Maria whether it was typical in a partner dance class to switch partners all the time. I had taken a Lindy Hop dance class with some friends when I was maybe 20 or so and I dreaded it every week because I would have to dance with like 12 different awkward guys. And Lindy Hop, which is like swing dancing, it's not overtly sexual, but it was handsy enough that it felt like there was an uncomfortable undertone with at least half of the dudes. Other dancing that I've had more experience with at various points in my life and enjoy a lot more is square dancing, folk dancing, Scottish Cayley dancing, or contra dancing. I've been to dances named all of these things. They all felt pretty similar. There's a live band with a prominent fiddle and then a caller on the microphone that will walk you through the dance at the beginning and then throughout. It's extremely beginner friendly. You can face your corner. And dos a do. Corner swing. Put her on the right. Circle left. Circle right. It's partner dancing, but you usually dance with several people over the course of a song. Up until recently, the dances I'd been to had been really flexible to what genders take the leader or follower roles. But for the first time in a long time, I went to one of these dances at a new place. 
And I went with a couple, I know, and so we were an odd number. When the first dance started, I spotted a woman about my age and I told my friend, oh, I'm just gonna go ask her to dance. My friend was like, wait, 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 no, that will seem really weird. And I was glad she stopped me because the culture of this particular dance night was that A, the expectation that leaders actually knew what they were doing, which I did not. I'd never been to a contra dance before, which is what it was. Not to mention that I still have dizziness symptoms from my concussion and being spun around a bunch, turns out, (laughs) provokes them. And then as it turned out, unfortunately at this event, it was pretty rare for women to lead. And so she could have interpreted it as me hitting on her or who knows. Just all those invisible cultural things you need to learn about in new dance spaces. So in partner dancing, especially when dirty dancing was made, it would have, all the language would have been male, female, right? Now all the language is changing, thank goodness, or guys, gals. Now all the things, the language is changing, rightfully so, to leader and follower. So in any kind of partner dance, you have a leader and you have a follower, And I just love that scene where Baby thinks she's going to be with What's-His-Face in the striped shirt. Her dad. Oh, thank you. Yeah. And then um, she's not. She's she's with this, like, old woman. I'm like, what a boss move for that woman. Mrs. fucking Schumacher is just disrupting the system left, right, and center. (laughs) I also feel so bad for the instructor. Like, why did she have to wear that? Like, she can't wear a proper bra, and that's something, as someone who has big breasts, I just hate. Let that woman wear a sports bra, for goodness sakes. Your teaching experience, have you taught partner dance, or is it mostly not? So the group I dance for does mainly what's called shines, so we're a ladies team that does only shines. But I have done a lot of a lot of partner dancing. I've never been, like, a lead, a head teacher in a partner dance because I'm not a good leader. I don't really know how to lead. Um, partner dancing I've never learned but I've been like I've taught them as a follower a lot a good lead follow class whether you are beginners or advanced should begin with some kind of discussion about what a good leader is when I first started partner dancing despite having done dance forever I really didn't know what made like a good leader or a good follower I was a bad follower as well But one of the things about being a good leader is like, it's always a suggestion of where to go and like what to do. And the minute that like, I really hate that feeling when you do something different on the social floor, because you're making it up as you go. They are too. But the leader has some idea of what they're trying to get you to do. So when you don't like do what they're expecting, I've definitely had leads kind of been like, oh, I can't believe you didn't know this movement that I learned in my one class at this festival that you have not taken. And my general response there is like, okay, I'll finish the dance, but I won't dance with you again. But in a class, we would move around because leaders have really different leading styles. And again, because you're learning a move, you it makes you think that like, oh, it'll always feel this way or always be done this way. Yeah. But depending on the leader, it can be really, really different. The, the salsa dancing that you do now, are you then, you, you must be mostly dancing with men or not so much. So if you went to like a standard social night, pretty much anywhere, I'll say like in the South Island of New Zealand, but I would say New Zealand as well, because I've gone to a fair few social nights across the country. Yeah, most of your leaders are going to be men, but it is significantly changing So for someone like me, I've thought a lot about whether I want to be like a leader on the dance floor because it 
like I'm you know I'm bossy I like to be in control it feels like I would be okay with doing that I like playing with the music it would expand how many more dances I could have because there's actually a small number of leaders right the the pool of leaders is smaller because the pool of unfortunately the pool of men is smaller so a lot of I think women are saying you know or um you know non-binary individuals saying well let's lead because that increases the number of dances we can have you can lead and follow it's definitely still mostly men, but it is definitely shifting. She's like the wind Through my dreams She rides the night Next to me So the next thing I wanted to, well, I would just tell you a little bit about is Penny, like the dance instructor, the way she's introduced is like, she used to be a Rockette. And I'm curious, do you know about the Rockettes? I like know about the Rockettes, sure. But I think growing up in New Zealand, like I don't know that much about the Rockettes. Like I knew them in name and a few point and I can identify them at the Macy Day's Day Parade. And I know they can kick very, very well. I mean, that's more than I knew. You're right. They're known for their precision dancing and that like they're always yeah like super in uniform with each other and these like really high kicks they have always felt to me like a um who am I thinking like Moulin Rouge dancers what are they called um oh okay but like cancan dancers right when I think of the rock kids I think of a really desexualized version it's like we want that precision and that amazing dancing, but we don't want any of the like heightened femininity that I think of when it comes to can-can dancers or burlesque dancers. Because they were around like even in the 20s. They, they started in the 20s, yeah. Yeah. So I feel like they have this role also in, I mean, all these kind of can-can dancers did of like entertaining soldiers, when I think of can-can dances, I think of, like, a range of, like, bust sizes and, like, um, body shapes, which has not always been true or maybe isn't true now. But when I think of rockets, I think of, like, almost carbon copies of people. Yeah, and, I mean, they have very intense height restrictions. I'm sorry to say you would be too short. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Rocket. Among other, yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> what is the height? Well, so it used to be shorter... Um, like, I feel like it was something like five foot four to something, you know, ancient humans were shorter. And then now it is, you must be between five, six and five, ten and a half. Ten and a half. So, um, I just read something at the bottom of the Rockets that's just popped up. It says, from the moment they appeared in 1925, the Rockets have been American icons. They're symbols of what you can achieve if you move with passion dream big, work hard, and most importantly, believe in yourself. But I feel like there needs to be an asterisk saying, and are between the sizes, like between five, six and five, ten and a half. So there's that. And then there's, you have to be like, must demonstrate proficiency in tap, jazz, ballet and modern dance. But like, so I am within the height requirements. I'm obviously not a dancer, but this third last point do I definitely not have, which is, they need to display a radiant energy that will shine across the footlights to their audience. I would say that, um, is it Penny? Yeah. Penny does. She radiates. She does radiate. But I'm curious because like this intense precision stuff, like the dancing we get to see her do is, well, I guess, I guess she's supposed to be Johnny's partner in the mom, Mambo. 
But we do get to see her really like let loose. I don't know. Actually, I'd be curious your thoughts on this. Like people who are very good, like technical kind of like performance dancers, they naturally are kind of like very comfortable and kind of like more freestyle, like club dancing. Or does that not necessarily go hand in hand? Because she seems very comfortable. I actually think like salsa is so interesting that way because like you don't ever have to learn how to social dance. When I first started doing salsa, I think you probably know the story, but it was it was really weird. These these amazing women um, asked me if I would join their dance team, and I was like, yeah, sure. And they said they were going to a big competition, and I was like, whatever. I've never danced salsa. If you want me to come learn how to do it, so be it. And it was about a few months into training that I kind of had to say, this feels very serious. Like, what are we training for? And they said worlds. I was like, that's super inconvenient because I really don't know how to do any salsa. So we went to this competition in Miami from New Zealand and competed and got third, which is a super absurd sentence to say in your life. And then I went to this the party afters because the great thing about like salsa competitions is that there is a party every night, every single night that that competition is on. And so I went to the party afterwards because all the girls on my team are incredible social dancers as well. And someone was like, do you want to dance? And I had to say like, I actually don't know how to do that. And I had my makeup on from this competition and he just kind of looked at me and was like, what, didn't you just get third in the world in this? And I was like, yeah, but you know what? And so... So in that setting, like, sure, we had danced really, really well, but actually social dancing is like a completely other skill. And I think you kind of only need to know the basics to be able to have a good enough time, but I really knew none of them for something as prescribed as salsa. I think for anyone, it's your comfort zone. And that can look like a lot of things. I traveled around, like did a solo trip around Europe and just danced at salsa clubs And that was some of the best social dancing I ever did, especially early on, because I just, I wasn't scared to fail. No one around there knew me. Depending on your environment, it can be easier to do that. But I do not think that just because you're a trained dancer, you're going to be able to groove in whatever way you need to in a club, because it could be totally different styles or even like how you're taught to engage with other people on a dance floor. It could be totally different. What was the other? Oh, I know. I was going to tell you about so that that thing you read about the Rockettes about like the American dream or whatever. Well, okay, number one, the first POC Rocket was allowed in 1987, so they were like all white for a very long time. And then they so this was from a 2005 New York Times article. I was basically I was curious how much money they made. Oh yeah, how much did they make? I could only find a range. It's, weekly they made between they make between like 1400 and 1900 dollars a week and i was like that doesn't seem like a lot and then i was like for what they do and so okay so they have seven dance numbers six costume changes as many as five shows in a 13 13 hour days six days a week so that like when you do the math the ones at the highest end make 24 dollars an hour no um and, you know, this is, like, classic gender pay gap shit. Yeah. Or like, well, you know, like, the reason the gender pay gap exists is because men do harder work. Like, men do more risky work, like, whatever. And it's, like, here we have this thing where these women are working, like, 30- Just another fade out on myself. 
because I think we need to slow things down a bit here. Also, craft note, if you're interviewing somebody over the internet, always get them to wear earbuds. I cannot believe I forgot to do that. That's why you can sometimes hear me on Maria's recording. Okay, so fact-checking where I got that $24 an hour. The U.S. Sun and Business Insider reported that the Rockettes make between $1,400 and $1,500 for their work each week, as does usworkforce.org, which had a strangely written article very reminiscent of the Coral Shoes one from Scene 2. This was a couple lines from it. However, it is not easy to be a Rockette, and you might wonder, how much do Rockettes make? The only person who wants to know the answer to this question is not you. What? That just gave me an existential crisis. So what I think I did was take 1500 or maybe it's 1900 I don't even remember where I got the 1900 from, divide that by the number of hours that was listed in a 2004 New York Times article by Susan Dominus which said that the Rockettes do as many as five shows in a 13-hour day and as many as six days of work a week. However, rereading this article, what is a lot more useful is when she says, Radio City management would not comment on what Rockettes earn, but dancers say they typically get paid on par with Broadway dancers, a salary that breaks down to about $135 a show. So $135 is about $206 today per show, which I still think is way too low for a 90-minute show without intermission that has seven dance numbers and six costume changes per show. I got paid to be more when I was a whitewater raft guide. Fortunately, though, they are unionized, so they get benefits year-round, which is amazing, and they get overtime for the third, fourth, and fifth shows of the day. So if they do five shows in one day, they would make about $1,339 for that day, which is good, but that is a grueling day. In the Susan Dominus article, she writes, with hours like that, rockets are forced to catch a bit of sleep whenever it's humanly possible. In the half hour of downtime between shows, they frequently pull out a pillow and sleeping bag or a favorite security blanket, and right there on the floor of their dressing rooms, piled head to toe, they fall dead to the world. I actually find this image adorable, and I feel like there is ample content to mine if someone wants to write a fanfic about Penny's years in the Rockettes. For what it's worth, I think Penny's bisexual. So I said I would talk about the gender pay gap if it ever came up in a scene, and I was not expecting it to happen this quickly. But one of the things Maria brought up when I told her about this, she reminded me that the arts are generally underpaid, which is true. But she went on to muse that it would be interesting to see what directors and choreographers of all female troops get paid. And yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if jobs typically held by men in underpaid industries were somehow actually well paid. And I can imagine a response to this could be like, well, there's nothing stopping women from getting those higher paid jobs in those industries. And let's say, for hypothetical sake, let's say there's no barriers for women getting those jobs. But what can happen, and what has happened in some job classes, is that if it flips from being male-dominated to female-dominated, then the overall pay drops. And this is the big, big part of the gender pay gap, which is not like a male doctor getting paid more than a female doctor. 
The gap has a lot more to do with entire industries or job classes being undervalued because they're associated as women's work. I mentioned in the Dirty Debrief that I used to work for a coalition that promoted pay equity, and I just searched to see if there's still this silly audio clip online that I made back when I worked there several years ago, and it sure is. Basically, one of the lawyers I worked with, I heard her give a lunch talk, and she took a couple minutes to explain the term the pink ghetto, and I thought she did such an excellent job summarizing it that I was like, I need to run her talk over a hip-hop beat and do some fun processing to it that I just learned how to do in Pro Tools and Ableton. Maybe not the best use of my time in that job, but you know. And I would love to play you the clip of her talking without the music, but I don't know where that is. So please enjoy this explainer by a smart lawyer named Jen Keto, accompanied by some obnoxious sound design that I am also still fond of. People often discuss, you know, well, I'm paid the same as my male counterpart, thus there is no wage gap. But we also need to focus, we also need to focus on where women work and what industries are predominantly filled by women. So I'll just kind of ask you, you can just nod your head. Has, have you heard about the pink ghetto? Have you heard about the pink ghetto? Okay. So the pink ghetto refers to this phenomenon where women are clustered into certain occupational groups or industries, mostly typified by caring work, education work, healthcare, and clerical and administrative functions. And this type of work engages tasks and responsibilities that are associated with being a woman. Associated with being a woman and left invisible and therefore not compensated. So I'll just guide you through that. So for example, things like high level communication skills, multitasking, fine dexterity skills, and care and nurturing are seen to be attributes and skills that are associated with being a woman, not skills that are acquired. Not skills that are acquired, right? You know, you always talk about a doctor and his bedside manner, but sometimes when you talk about a nurse, it's not really a concept you think of. There's an assumption that that caring element has to be there. So that's what I mean when I talk about the invisibility of women's work. And if it's invisible, it can't be valued. 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 It's not valued, it's not compensated. And this is how we get to the undervaluation of women's work. So this is why I jumped to the conclusion that the Rockettes lower pay was a gender pay gap issue, as job classes that are associated with women are seen less demanding because there is an assumption that the tasks come naturally to women and are therefore not real skills. Okay, well then how do you know if something is a gender pay gap issue or something else, like the arts being generally undervalued? Well, you compare the class of workers with a male-dominated equivalent. Unfortunately, this was very hard to do with the Rockettes because I wanted another performance troupe that also was at Radio City Music Hall. For the life of me, I could not find the salaries of the Riverdance dancers, except that the 
guy that founded it is a millionaire now. From what I could see, the Blue Man Group gets paid way, way more than the Rockettes, but they are owned by a different parent company, so it's a bit hard to compare. Because the gender pay gap is so insidious and such a complex issue, there are several things that need to be addressed in order to close it. Here are just a couple. One is getting pay equity laws in the books. Pay equity is equal pay for work of equal value. Sometimes people use that interchangeably with equal pay, but it's not the same thing. So Ontario has a pay equity act that requires workplaces with 10 or more employees to ensure that men and women receive equal pay for performing jobs that may be very different, but are of equal or comparable value. I think a natural question to that might be, how the hell do you decide whether completely different jobs have equal value? Well, my friends, that's in the act too. You're to assess your job classes based on skill, effort, responsibility, and working conditions, and there are tools to help you determine that. Let me give you an example. When midwifery became regulated by the Ontario government, it went through the pay equity process to determine their pay and found that midwives should get a very similar pay to community health center family physicians, specifically 91% of their pay. But what happened is that over the years, while the government would be open to negotiations with the CHC physicians, and as a result, their wages increased, rightfully so, the government would make excuses about the economy or whatever when dealing with the midwives and refused to raise their pay. So by 2013, the midwives were earning 53% of the pay that the community health center family physicians earned. So finally, the midwives filed an application to the Human Rights Tribunal of Ontario against the provincial government, arguing that this is sex discrimination. And it's been dragged through the courts for 10 years, the midwives winning at every juncture and the government appealing and appealing. This reminds me of a common critique I hear about the legitimacy of the gender pay gap. It's like, well, it's not our fault if women are bad at negotiating. And here is an example of a super dominated women's job class with all of their attempts to negotiate just being systemically ignored for years until they're forced to go to court. Which brings me to another issue that would help close the pay gap, which is pay transparency. A lot of women have no clue that they're being underpaid because they don't know what men are making in similar positions. There's lots of different models for pay transparency around the world that are already in place. So a lot of different ways it can look without throwing your workplace into chaos. As a freelancer, I'm always asking other freelancers what they charge for things and sharing what I charge because in freelancing, that's really the only way we can better make sure none of us are being exploited until we get unionized. That is, that is another big step to closing the pay gap, more unions. There's so much more that could be said about the pay gap, but I'll get off my soapbox for now and let's hear the last bit that Maria said in our interview. Okay, that's like all of my points. Is there any last thing you want to say about the scene or dirty dancing? I can always have you back on for another scene. So. Yeah, I feel like um one thing I definitely want to kind of throw out there to the ether, if this makes it, is that um dance classes are so fun. And I feel like the thing that bums me out about this and dirty dancing like as a whole is that like you have to have an amazing dance partner to go to a dance class. 
and have any fun at all. And that is such a fallacy. And I think especially like this story is really focused on obviously on baby and like that journey. But I also think that's why we like don't see a lot of leads and like especially a lot of dudes dancing in salsa is that it's so scary to go to a dance class, especially a class where you are going to be leading other people because you feel like you have to know. But they'll teach you. They'll teach you really, really well. And it is like a lifelong skill. And it doesn't have to be about like falling for someone in any way. Um, you can also have fun with someone who cannot dance and you were just having a blast. So yeah, that's my, that's my PSA to like, just go to a dance class. It's gonna be great. of the episode which means it's time for the dramatic argument i think the dramatic argument for this scene is baby is an ingenue i only learned the meaning of this word recently when my friend ariana in the very first episode called baby an ingenue character and i realized it was one of those words that i've heard before but was not confident i actually knew what it meant I did know it was the name of a Katie Lang album because I listened to it for the first time during an earlier season of my recovery. And whenever I would get into Lake Ontario, I would sing in my head one of the songs from that album. Wash, wash me clean. The simplest definition of ingenue seems to be an innocent young female character, or sometimes the term was used for actresses who play these kinds of characters. Audrey Hepburn was called an ingenue, so was Elizabeth Taylor in her National Velvet days, Debbie Reynolds in her Singing in the Rain days. When I looked on Wikipedia, it said the ingenue usually has the fawn-eyed innocence of a child with a subtle sexual appeal. This was echoed in a book I happened to be reading for another project, and in passing, the first marriage of actress Debbie Reynolds was mentioned, which was amazingly held at Grossinger's i.e. the resort that Kellermans is based off of. Her marriage happened eight years before the events of Dirty Dancing, when Debbie was 23 years old, and the author of the book I was reading described her as pert and vivacious, but appearing at the same time to be fresh and innocent. My feminist alarm bells definitely started ringing at all of this because I was like, oh no, is the ingenue sexualizing innocence? That's fucked up because sexualizing innocence means sexualizing children, which is both criminal and immoral. It teaches men that what is desirable in a partner is someone who is inexperienced and easily awed by them. I recently rewatched another charming film from 1987 called Moonstruck, starring Cher and a very young Nicolas Cage. And while I generally really enjoyed the film, there is this cringy side character played by the dad actor from Frasier, who we see at a small Italian restaurant get dumped by a succession of women much younger than him. And near the end of the film, Cher's mother has dinner with him. So we find out that he's a university professor and that's how he meets the women. 
at one point, Cher's mom asks him, why do men chase women? And then she supplies her own interesting answer. I think it's because they fear death. But then dad from Frasier is like, I find women charming. And then he goes on to explain a bunch, including the following. Sometimes I'll be droning along. I'll just look up and see a fresh, beautiful young face. And it's all new to her. I'm just this great guy who's brilliant and thinks out loud. When I see a young woman's face and see me in her eyes, me the way I always wanted to be, maybe who I once was, I ask her out for a date. It doesn't last long, a few weeks, a couple precious months, until she catches on that I'm just a burned out gas bag. Remember he said that he chases women because he finds them charming? So I guess what he finds charming is... 18-year-olds who find him sophisticated because they don't know any better. Number one, that's a very pathetic standard of attraction. But number two, that's also an abuse of power. Thankfully, Cher's mom responds with, What you don't know about women is a lot. But for me, that doesn't make up for the fact that the movie frames his conduct as mostly harmless and kind of funny. Whereas for these women, the best case scenario is in 10 years, they're going to reassess that relationship and feel super conflicted about it and go to therapy for a while to sort it out. That's the best case scenario. And meanwhile, he just skims along life, being like, doopy doopy doo, why won't anyone love me? This led me further to worry that the ingenue was a type of character I grew up on and have come to loathe, which is the young, precociously seductive girl. I recently listened to Jamie Loftus's podcast on Lolita, the book and its legacy, which by the way, if you like the density of this podcast and you have some feelings about Lolita, you will probably really enjoy Lolita podcast. And also you'll be grateful that Butt Out Baby isn't on iHeartRadio where ads are blasted at you every 15 minutes. So what I learned from Jamie's podcast is that likely the 1997 film Lolita is to blame for this super fucked up trend of the teenage seductress character that like tricks men into sleeping with her instead of the story having any kind of scrutiny being on the adult men's conduct towards a minor. Or how about we just take a very long break from telling stories like this because it normalizes this dynamic as like a fun, dangerous aspect of sexuality. I know a lot of girls from my generation that internalize that. But I will argue, an ingenue is not necessarily a Lolita. The etymology of the word ingenue is interesting. It comes from a Latin word that means of noble character, frank, upright, candid. So a quality of the ingenue is that unfiltered frankness that we associate with children. This is why I've seen Scout from To Kill a Mockingbird be called an ingenue. She's not sexualized or condescended to by the text, but she's endearing because she's not corrupted by the racist social norms of her time, and so she sees no issue in blatantly calling them out. So an ingenue is young and inexperienced, but she has an endearing honesty and ability to speak out simple truths. That's definitely our baby houseman. Side note, as I was looking into ingenues, I was wondering if any women of color, particularly black young characters or actresses, had been called ingenues in the 80s or before. The answer seems to be basically no. In a Huffington Post article by Claire Fallon from 2017, she explained this disparity by pointing out that while white women were expected to carefully guard their fragile virtues, presenting a pure and feminine package to their future husbands, women of color, especially black women, were generally treated as sexually knowing and available from a young age, 
regardless of their actual experience. This reminds me of studies I've heard about where black boys are perceived as older and less innocent than white same age peers. While I was looking through this, I came across an article in Sports Illustrated from 1976 by Frank Defford, which was this jokey article on how the upcoming hunt for 1980 presidential nominees should reframe itself as a sports spectacle. And one of his jokes was that the process could provide jobs as color commentators for ex-political luminaries. And he was like, Mel Laird and Lady Bird Johnson could team up while Julian Bond plays the black ingenue, quote, an obligatory network sports casting role these days. Does anyone listening to this know the history of sports casting well enough to wager what he's referencing? I can't tell if he's critiquing the practice as belittling to the Black commentator or if he's rolling his eyes at what he sees as an affirmative action ploy or maybe something else. Okay, so ingenues of this era are mostly white young women who, let's be real, are thin. I was listening to a podcast called Fat Chat, which has three co-hosts who are actors and identify as fat. And they were reminiscing about how they were cast at their high school plays and musicals. Despite being the obvious choice to be leads, they were passed over again and again and again. And in one case, one was told directly to their face that it was because ingenues aren't fat. In Claire Fallon's article on ingenues, she makes the claim that the term is falling out of fashion because, thankfully, female characters these days aren't restricted to the Madonna whore binary I think this is true, and I'm so grateful for the explosion of interesting, complex young characters in the past couple decades, but I don't actually think ingenues buy into the binary. And a lot of young characters that have emerged from the 90s onwards are ingenues, even if we don't use that word anymore. Harry Potter, the girls in Booksmart, the lead into All the Boys I've Loved Before, just to name a few. I have personally decided it's a timeless character. This scene is mostly Baby stumbling through a dance class, looking uncomfortable in her body, having no connection to her sensuality, as Christy pointed out in comparison to Penny. But since this is the third scene, we already know enough about Baby to know that she's also an intellectual and respected by her father and able to bond with resort staff from different class backgrounds. We're embarrassed for her in this scene, sure, but we're also already fond of her and are rooting her on. Thank you for continuing to listen to a podcast that has no release schedule. I think I am going to do a dirty debrief for this episode because I want to talk about interviewing. Feel free to send your thoughts and open-hearted critiques on this episode to ellie at buttoutbaby.com. Please follow the show on Instagram. I will also link to Maria's work in the show notes. And uh, why don't you have a little dance? 